Well, good morning, Hillcrest family. My name is Eric Duncan, and I am pastor of worship and communications here at Hillcrest. And so you might hear that title and say, okay, Eric, we've heard you say that before. What does it actually mean? What do you actually actually do here as a part of our church community? So let me just share a real quick uh, note with you on that. So on the worship side, uh, I help with music. Now, if you've been around Hillcrest for any period of time, then you know right away that we have an incredibly talented group of very committed musicians. So I'm not like totally necessary in the worship part of amazing people involved with that, um, but I do get to help out uh, with the music side, and I also help to plan our worship services, uh, and I help to edit this here video that you are watching right now and uh, do our online worship services since uh, COVID has begun. So um, that's kind of the worship side, and then on the communications side, uh, I lead our communications team at Hillcrest, which exists to amplify the values of the church in order that all of us might increasingly exemplify those values in our lives. And so we take the stories and the events and the happenings of our community and try to amplify them out to um, everyone through various channels. And so uh, we've got a great group of people of volunteers as our comms team, um, and they uh, take care of our Facebook page, um, our Instagram page, our weekly e-news, which is a weekly email that we send out, um, our website, and then we meet in person. We have our bulletins too. So there's just different channels that our communications people handle uh, together. So it's a privilege uh, to do this job. I love it and uh, thankful to be a part of this family. Um, In particular, uh, I want to welcome anyone who is a newcomer to Hillcrest. Maybe you're a person who's watched with us online some, or maybe today's your first day, but you've never actually stepped foot inside of the building where Hillcrest Bible Church uh, meets regularly. That's awesome. We love that, that you found us, that our services have been another way to connect with you. That's fantastic. And so we're glad that you're here. Um, And in particular, if you're a person who's maybe somewhat of a skeptic, or you're still sort of like new to Christianity or uh, investigating Christianity, Um, I'm hoping that today's message can maybe be helpful for you in a unique way because I hope that I'll resolve some tensions that I think people who tend to be skeptical really wrestle with sometimes. And so um, on on that note, uh, you know, after this message, if you still have some questions, uh, you feel unclear about something, uh, we would love it if you would reach out. I'd say first, uh, reach out to anyone in this community who you personally have a connection with. They would love to talk with you further about questions that you have about Christian faith. Um, And then second, if you don't have that personal connection, uh, then I would say reach out to me, um, Eric. It's eric at hbclife.com. I'd love to get an email from you and just continue to wrestle with you through uh, questions that you have related to uh, the faith. So uh, this week, we are continuing on in our Tensions series. Uh, We are in week four of the series, and um, in this series, we are celebrating the and of God in an either-or world. And today, our topic in particular is God as Father and Judge. And as we get into this idea of God as Father and Judge, uh, what we'll see is that as, for us as people, as we relate with God, we tend to fall into distorting God's character or into having kind of caricatures of God on either side of this father or judge side of things. And, and with that, then we fail to realize the full extent of all of who God is, his full goodness and beauty. And it can keep us from fully enjoying his attributes as father and judge. So um, here is our big idea for today. Um, we tend to caricature God as either a grandfatherly figure or as a harsh judge, when in fact his fatherhood and identity as judge work in harmony together to produce greater admiration in us 
as his children. So that's where we're headed. And as we get started, I want us to begin with these words from 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19, beginning with this text here that uses both the word father and judge together. Uh, Hear these words. Peter's talking, he says, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And so there we go, right in that verse, we see that you call on a father who judges. Both those ideas right there together. So let me pray for us, and then we will uh, jump in. Father, you are good to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can study your scriptures, that we can dig into it together, that we can encounter you through it, that we can learn more about you through it, God. Um, Thanks for this community of people uh, that we have, um, that we can talk about these truths with uh, together. Um, And God, it's uh, my prayer that during this time, Lord, that your words uh, would be spoken uh, clearly and in a way that lasts in our hearts. So we pray toward this end in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, as we begin to talk about these caricatures that we tend to have of God, that he's either sort of this tender grandfatherly figure or that he's a judge, I've got a couple props that I want to use to help us to uh, explain this idea. So um, first, uh, I have a pillow, okay? And so the pillow for us is going to sort of represent, okay, nice fluffy, fluffy pillow here, uh, represent God as a tender grandfatherly figure in the sense that uh, God as a comfort object. I think that this is one side of the spectrum that we go towards sometimes too much as we relate with God, that it's sort of like God's full-time job to give us the warm fuzzies, to make us feel good about ourselves. It's his full-time job to forgive us. And uh, the times that we need God are when we need him, and then when we don't need him, he doesn't really have to be around. He's not really necessary, right? There's actually um, an idea that some uh, religious sociologists have referred to this as therapeutic deism. So therapeutic deism, the idea that God is sort of a distant God, like deism. He sort of made the world and he kind of just walked away then, and yet he's therapeutic. He's there when we need him to make us feel good. And having uh, been in a a number of uh, college ministry roles and settings myself in the past, um, I've encountered a number of times where I'll run into a student who, you know, they're great, they want to come to Bible study, they volunteer for things, they have social skills, they invite people to get together and to connect, and it's like, this is fantastic. I enjoy relating to the student. This is going really well. But then we start to get into some more challenging topics. We start to read the Bible more, and they start to encounter those places where God might actually confront them and challenge them to change things about their lives. And uh, as we do that, I realize that they're sort of just closed to being corrected by God, and they're closed to some of the more challenging teachings. So one that often comes up is on this idea of judgment, and that is hell, the idea of hell. And the student, you know, might just say, like, I don't, I don't, I don't believe in hell. I just kind of reject that idea. I mean, God, he's a loving God. Like, how could he possibly send people to hell? There's no way. And I want to point them to scripture and, like, wrestle with this and think about the logic behind that statement. But there's just a closedness. It's like, well, no, no, no. God, 
God would never do that. Like God's just, he's a pillow, right? He's a comfort object, you know? Or uh, maybe um, it comes up when they get into romantic relationships and the idea of sexuality and what they do with their bodies. And so as we talk about those things, it's just like, no, like God, God's just going to kind of let me do whatever it is that I want to do. He doesn't care about these things. It's fine. And once we get them, we go to scripture and try to wrestle and show them. It's like, well, no, right? God's just, he's just a pillow. He's just there to comfort me. He's not going to confront me or rebuke me or correct me. And you'll see that idea quite a bit in people. And that's this, this caricature of God as just this comfort object. And so um, as we think about the pillow side, I think a, a helpful statement there is that um, it's a view of God as all relationship, but no power. All relationship, but no power. And then on the other side, uh, I would say that we can have this distortion that God is a harsh judge. And so here I've got a, a good hammer, all right? Just a nice mallet. The idea that God is um, hammer and here, uh, the judge only side, we could say that it is God is seen as all power, but no relationship. God is all judgment. Uh, God is there to monitor human behavior and to like kind of hover around. And as soon as he sees somebody doing something wrong, whack, right? He's gonna, you know, take them down, strike them with lightning, or he's there to sort of make sure that human beings don't have too much fun while we're down here or something like that, right? Uh, and, you know, if, if you are a person who's from a more legalistic church background or maybe a, um, a more ritualistic church background, a more rule-oriented type of background, maybe you're a person who grew up in a family that was really strict on, like, moral principles, then you might wrestle a little bit more with seeing God as this harsh judge. And so there's the pillow side, and then there is the hammer side. These are distortions of God's character. Both of them are. They are both taking one element of God's character, pulling it out of context, and failing to integrate it with all of who God is. And so what I want to help us to do today is to resolve this tension, to see how, in fact, we need both of these elements of God, the tenderness of a father and the sternness of a judge, to grasp all of who God is and how, in fact, each of these are necessary attributes of God for us to consider him a God who is reliable and who's worthy of our trust. So uh, to do this, I want to start by showing us some examples in scripture where both of these elements of God play out pretty strongly and in a way that almost can cause us to kind of scratch our heads and wonder like, God, what are you doing in this passage? Um, but then as we go through these scriptures, we'll find resolution to what seems to be a tension at first. So to start, we're going to start in Leviticus Chapter 9. That's right, people. You know it's going to be a good sermon when you're opening up to Leviticus. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go Leviticus chapter 9. I'll put it up here on the screens for us. And this is the place in Leviticus where Moses has, uh, for the first time, built the tabernacle. Uh, the tabernacle is a fancy word for tent. Basically means a uh, very specially designed tent where God ordained that him and his people could meet together in fellowship. Sinful people and a holy God. God creates the tabernacle, this place where they could be together in this sacred space. And the very first time that Moses receives these instructions and uh, kind of uh, does the rituals of the tent of meeting, here's what happens. In verse uh, 23, Leviticus 9, it says this, Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. 
fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. They had like uh, sacrificed offerings to him and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and they fell face down. And so what we see in Leviticus 9 is this picture of this awesome and powerful God coming and he's, he's with his people. He's near to them. They shout for joy. Aaron blesses the people on God's behalf. And so there's this, this picture of God coming near and blessing his people and being close with them. But, but then the next chapter, the very next few verses, Leviticus 10, this happens. Aaron's sons, and Aaron was the line of the priests who were set up to work in the tabernacle. His sons Nadab and Abihu took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Yikes, right? It's like a harsh story. It's a harsh judgment. Let me look at uh, one other one for us. Um, Acts chapter 2 is the story of Pentecost. This is when the Holy is now in the New Testament, right after Jesus has been resurrected and ascended to the right hand of God. And he says, wait for the Holy Spirit to come and to empower you for ministry. And so the Holy Spirit comes in this passage. Uh, when the day of Pentecost came, they were together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So in the storyline of Acts, like this is another uh, similar to the tabernacle moment. It's this moment where God's with his people. He pours out the spirit. He comes near and his people are worshiping and they're proclaiming the name of Jesus and the glory of God and all these other languages. It's incredible. But then three chapters later, Acts chapter five, there's a story of judgment, harsh judgment. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, they were a part of this early church community. They also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back a part of the money for himself, but brought the rest of it and put it at the feet of the apostles. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you have received for the land? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter, Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. In other words, she was co-conspirating with her husband in this. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Okay. Like, whoa, right? These are intense stories. And back to back, we see God's near to his people. He's close to him. But then there's also these judgments. How, how do we reconcile these two things? How do we put these together? That God can be a father, but then also a judge. Well, here's uh, an idea that we need to understand. God's power to judge actually makes him a more comforting father, not less. God's power to judge actually makes him a more comforting father, not less. Why? Why would that be the case? 
Well, um, if God lacks the power to protect his children, then why should we trust him? He's obviously unable to bring about what he desires. He might be a comforting pillow, but when a threat comes, I want to know that there's a hammer available too. I don't want the protector of the universe, the person at the top of the org chart of the whole world, I don't want that person to have a pillow as the best weapon at their disposal. No, I want to know that the hammer is available. And this makes sense in other areas of life too. In general, we are drawn to things which are not only gentle or comforting or safe, but we are drawn to things that are powerful, even things that are dangerous. I mean, perfect example. We just celebrated the 4th of July. Like, do I need to celebrate, do I need to share any other examples? Fireworks, right? I mean, it's like kind of silly almost. Me, me and like 20 or so people sat in our front lawn. We've got a park right in front of our house and we're all sitting there and we're just like awed, right? Just amazed. These fireworks that our neighbor was lighting off in front of us and every time he lights one off, we're all just like, yes, this is awesome. Like more fire, more life-threatening activities happening 30 feet away from where my kids are standing, right? It's like so strange, this human behavior, right? And yet it is, we're drawn to this because it's powerful and it's amazing. In the same way, we might be drawn towards going and visiting a volcano or seeing huge mountains or you might see a thunderstorm off in the distance and there's this power that you're like, that is incredible. We're drawn to these things. You know, on the fireworks idea, we're not, we're not nearly as drawn to pop rocks, right? I give pop rocks to my four-year-old, you know, but it's not as exciting. No, power correctly harnessed, rightly expressed is beautiful to us. It's a good thing. It's not, it doesn't have to be bad. And so what specifically then are some beautiful and good things about God's role as judge? I mean, I don't think we necessarily need a lot of convincing about the father's side of God being good. That feels like a given, but I do want to help us understand how the judgment part of God can coexist within a loving father. That's what 1 Peter 1 said, that he's a father who judges. We know both exist together, but I want to see us, help us to see how, and then we'll end with some practical takeaways uh, after that. So, um, so what is beautiful and good about God's role as judge? Well, four, four things I want to look at. First uh, is this. God's role as judge satisfies the human yearning for justice. God's role as judge satisfies the human yearning for justice. And friends, it is particularly apparent in the news and in the headlines and our social media feeds right now that we have a world that longs for justice. We have people protesting for justice all over the country and even all over the world right now in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and other instances of violence against people of, of color. And so, you know, you don't have to be religious to be a person who desires justice either, right? You don't even have to believe in any sort of God at all. I have lots of friends who consider themselves totally secularists, totally materialists, and yet they are still out there crying for justice. And that shows that this yearning for justice is simply stamped on the human heart. And disbelief in God doesn't just make that disappear somehow. But the question is, where is this justice going to come from? Who's going to bring it? Who's going to carry, carry it out? I mean, who's righteous enough to carry it out? I mean, who are we necessarily to say, oh, you know, bring justice to these people as if 
We don't need any justice against us at all ourselves. Where's this justice going to come from? Is it going to come from politicians? Is it going to come from the state? Uh, many social commentators have helpfully pointed out that atheism today so often isn't actually atheism. More often, it is statism. It is the worship of the state. It is the enthronement of a political party or a candidate or cause to the point of ultimacy, where the relative prosperity of the future is held primarily in the hands of that politician or party, and where one's sense of optimism or pessimism about the future is dependent on the rising and falling of that politician or party. Now, frankly, that's not just atheism that can fall in that statism. It can also be religious circles that can fall into that same idea of statism. But can a state bring ultimate justice? Can the United Nations bring ultimate justice? No, I mean, don't get me wrong. I believe in fighting for justice. I believe that God calls us to do so. I believe in advocating for change. I think that peaceful protests and healthy participation in the political processes is a wonderful thing that as Christ followers, we should all, by all means do so. And that is good. But it is one thing to work toward justice and it is quite another to expect that justice to actually fully come in this life. And yet we can't help but wanting it to come. And yet human history bears out to show us that as human beings, we just seem bent on hurting each other and robbing each other and starting wars with one another. And we might make some progress in one area of policies and of justice now, but then another one will bust a hole not that long from now. And so we're all just running around trying to keep up with this idea of justice. And yet God is uniquely situated to be the bringer of justice. God knows the motivation of every heart. God knows the exact order of events that occurred behind every accusation. God sees everything and he knows everyone. If anyone is able to balance the scales of justice, God is the only one who's able to do it. And so anytime that we are crying out for justice, we can realize we're actually just crying out for God, the ultimate judge, to come and to bring his justice. So that's the first idea. So that God, God's role as judge satisfies the human yearning for justice. That's a good thing. It's part of his fatherhood. The second idea is this. God is patient in his judgment and his patience is merciful, not negligent. See, some people are sort of impatient with God, thinking, well, if he's such a good father, if he's such a capable judge, then why, does, why doesn't he intervene now? Why doesn't he do something now? And in the face of tragedy after tragedy, like I can, I can sympathize with that perspective. But the thing that we miss is that God's delaying of judgment is actually a mercy on his part. It's actually a good thing for us and our world and specifically for our friends and family members who don't yet know Christ. Why? Why is it a good thing? Well, 2 Peter 3, 9, helpfully, says this. It instructs us in this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Why? Why is he patient with us? Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, God is a judge, but he is a patient judge. You see, the, the thing that we often miss when we ask God to come and to deliver justice 
is that if God were to come in judgment tomorrow, he might judge you, right? I mean, whenever someone cries out for God to just come down off his throne and come, you know, wipe out all the bad people, we presume in saying that, that we are not among the bad people. But scripture teaches that in fact, we are. That evil runs rampant in every human heart, not just in the hearts of the people who make headlines. I mean, observe the two stories that we just heard in Leviticus and in Acts. In both of those stories, the people who were judged were insiders to the community of God. God wasn't judging heathen. He wasn't judging outsiders in those passages. Those were people who were part of the community of God. And so when we say, God, come, come get them, do justice, we forget that them might actually be us. And so God's patience then with us is merciful. It's not negligent. He's giving us all time to come to our senses, to acknowledge our waywardness, to acknowledge that we have all sinned and that we all are broken and that we all have ignored and rebelled against this good God who created us and who knows how the world ought best to run. And so he gives us patience to repent and to turn and find life in him. And so if God were to come today, I mean, how many would miss the opportunity to turn and to experience the same joy that we've all found in treasuring Jesus above all else? And so God's patience as, as a judge is merciful. It's not negligence. That's the second idea. The third idea is this. God turns his judgment against Jesus instead of us, allowing sinful people to be judged as righteous in God's sight. Hear these uh, words from 2 Corinthians 5.21 and Romans 3. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That's Jesus that it's describing there. That, that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Or here in uh, Romans 3, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. In other words, he who is the judge is also the one who created the means by which we might escape judgment. And that means is through the death and resurrection of Jesus. The hammer fell on Jesus instead of on us. The nails went into the hands of Jesus instead of on ours. And as all the world cries out for justice, when Jesus, the perfectly just one, came, he didn't cry out for justice. No, he cried out for forgiveness. He said, Lord, forgive them. They know not what they do. And so the one who holds the hammer and who had every right to bring that hammer down on us is the very same one who lays the hammer down and says, you're justified now. You're blameless because by faith you died Jesus' death and by faith you are credited with Jesus' perfect righteousness in life. And so while God is judge, he chooses to carry out his justice against Jesus instead of us, so that we don't have to live in fear of condemnation. So that's the third thing. And then lastly, this fourth idea. God will use his judgment 
to create a future world free from sin and death. God will use his judgment to create a future world free from sin and death. It is interesting that for so many people, judgment is considered a negative thing. And yet without judgment, there is no justice. You need to have judgment in order to have justice. See, God's goal is to create a good world where his people can live in right relationship with him, with each other, and with the created world around us. But in order to do that, the people who live in that world have to be willing to cooperate with God's vision of the world. Ultimately, that's what faith in Christ is. It's saying, Lord, I trust your vision of the world more than mine. I want your actions, not my own. I want your decisions, not mine. See, Jesus came the first time to provide forgiveness to all who repent. But the next time that he comes, it will be to judge those who aren't on board with his vision, who don't want to be a part of this new kingdom and this new world. John 12 summarizes this idea well. Jesus says this, If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I've not come to judge, but to save the world. Verse 48, but there is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. And the very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. God, indeed, will judge, but he does so towards a desirable end, towards producing the kind of world that is described in the final pages of Scripture Hear these words from Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And so friends, God uses his judgment toward a desirable end, namely that of producing a new world free from sin and death. I had a a professor during seminary who would often say, you know, it is somewhat scary to live in a world with a God of wrath, but not nearly as scary as it would be to live in a world without a God like that. Because in that world, evil reigns un checked. But our God is a faithful and good judge, and evil will not have the last word in our world. No, God will cast all evil and sin and death out, and he will usher in a new order free from sin and death. And so we see then in all of these ideas that God can have these positive and beautiful elements of being a judge that actually strengthen his identity as a good father who's able to provide forgiveness for his children, who's able to usher in this new world for us. And so then let's talk about some practical takeaways then. What does this actually mean for us in our lives as we go from here? Uh, One idea would be this, spend some time exploring the aspect of God, like the pillow or the hammer side, that you are less naturally inclined toward. So, you know, for you, maybe you're, you naturally lean towards God being really harsh and stern. And so for you, like spend some intentional time cultivating and, and exploring and doing Bible study, getting into the idea that no, he's a father and he's gentle and he's tender and he's loving and your security with him is, is, is secure. It's sure in Christ. So you can lean into that. And, and then on the other side, right, if you're a person who naturally 
kind of sees them as on the pillow side. It's like, well, no, lean in, read some scriptures, look at some Psalms that talk about God as judge and lean into that aspect of having an appropriate and reverent fear of God a bit. Uh, maybe uh, you're going to, maybe you could find a particular scripture um, that uh, is maybe even a scripture that's a little bit uncomfortable for you, that makes you, like, I don't really fully understand that scripture. Maybe put it in your phone or put it on an index card and just carry it around for you, for, uh, with you for a day. And then just ponder it. Think about it. Let that sink in as you consider that. Um, another one uh, along the same lines would be this. If you struggle with rule-based Christianity and an overly sensitive conscience, remember that you've been adopted by God and he's your father. Maybe it'd be helpful even just out loud with a trusted friend to confess to them some of the, the sins, so-called sins, or some of the things you've been having that's been plaguing your conscience. Just share it out loud with them and your friend might just be like, dude, for real? Like, you're, that's bothering you? It's not even a big deal, right? Like, get over it. Move on, okay? Um, so just lean into that fatherhood of God. And then on the other side, if you tend to view God, um, oh, sorry, wrong one there. If you uh, struggle with rule-based Christianity and overly, or sorry, maybe I skipped one here. What did I do? Gotta find my, sorry, find my thing here. I must have skipped one of my slides, sorry. Uh, anyhow, um, then on the other side of that, uh, if you are a person who sees God as a comfort object and rarely, like, you never feel convicted about sin, right? You're just like always good all the time. Well, for you then, remember that God can be a judge and that there are real consequences for sin, you know? And to maybe, maybe for you, same thing, like find that trusted friend, describe some of your daily habits to them and they might tell you, all sorts of sins you didn't even realize you're committing, you know? And so you need to lean into that judgment aspect of God. Uh, here's another one to consider. As you relate with others through social media and in person, as you consume news, recall that Jesus set aside judgment for compassion. He set aside Jesus for compassion. Remember, he didn't demand justice against the evildoers. Rather, he called for forgiveness. How tender-hearted then should we be? How compassionate, how loving should we be as Christ followers? And does our response to news headlines and our persona on social media represent the compassion of Jesus? Or do we more bring the sternness of God, which God tells us to entrust to him as he is the one who will avenge, not us? So consider that. Um, and then also this, as you work toward justice and toward transformation in your homes, neighborhoods, neighborhoods and in the world, Place your ultimate hope in Jesus as the good judge, not in politicians or politics or in policies. Those are good things. You can work toward those things, but our ultimate hope stays in Jesus. And then uh, lastly, I'll just, just end with this. Um, if you are a person who has not yet trusted Jesus, uh, I would invite you to reflect on the beauty and goodness of this God who is simultaneously able to uphold justice and at the very same time provide the means by which we can be free from that judgment. This is a good God that we serve. We invite you to move towards him, to trust him. So let me pray for us and then we'll move into some continued worship through music. God, you are Father and we pray to you as 
Father, thanking you that through Jesus we share in his sonship, and then we also become your sons and daughters, your children. So we thank you, we adore you, we praise you for these truths. And God, we also honor you as judge, and we pray you would help us to live our lives with an appropriate level of reverent fear, knowing, God, that you are one who holds people accountable. And God, we thank you ultimately, Lord, that you will usher in this new world that is free from pain and sin and death. We thank you for it. We thank you for the cross and for the righteousness you provide for us in your presence as the Father who judges. We are grateful, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.